Well, you remember that last week we began an examination of the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is a section of our Lord Jesus' teaching commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, and so we'll stick with that title um, just because it's the traditional one. But as I noted last week, we're defining it correctly. Um, And uh, we saw last week in our consideration of the first Beatitude that... uh, We must be poor in spirit, Jesus said. And we saw how that leads directly into the next beatitude that we're going to be considering this morning. As I did last week, I'm going to read the whole passage from verse 1 through verse 12. And then, of course, we'll focus in on, on verse 4. Beginning in, in uh, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes were told, our Lord Jesus went up on a high mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we noticed last week that the focus here is on the kingdom of heaven as a present possession. But I also pointed out that there's a now and not yet aspect to the kingdom. The ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom awaits the future although we can experience the kingdom as a present reality now. We have a foretaste of what's to come. In fact, later on in chapter 6, in verses 9 and 10, where uh, Jesus gives a model prayer, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. There it's praying that the kingdom will come. Because there's a sense in which, again, the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom is in the future. But here the focus is on, who it is who can experience the reality of that future kingdom now. As I said last week, it's as though the future kingdom has reached back into the past, manifesting itself in our lives and pulling us to the future. And so we can experience now something of the reality of that future kingdom. And Jesus said that's only right those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he begins and ends this section with who, who it is who possesses the kingdom of heaven as a present reality, which means this is what we call an inclusion, where you repeat something at the beginning and the end, and that tells you what the main point really is driving at, right? All of these beatitudes are descriptive of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, he elaborates a little bit more on the final one in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is reward in heaven. That's the future kingdom emphasis there, right? For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your word. It's my prayer that you'll help us to understand what it is that you want us to learn 
from our Lord Jesus' teaching in this text. We were reminded last week, as we'll see this week, that he wasn't saying in these Beatitudes new things, really. The new thing is that the kingdom was there in his presence in Christ, that he had brought in the reality of the kingdom. But all the things that he's saying here really were things they should have known from the Old Testament. And so help us to understand what it is that we should know because we have the whole Bible as we look at our Lord Jesus' teaching this morning. Open our eyes that we may see, I pray. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts quick to obey and to receive all that you have to say to us. We ask these things for our good, but most of all for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think as we begin, I'd like for all of us to take a moment to just stop and think about what has made us mourn in our lives. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. What is it that that has caused you to mourn? What is it that first comes to mind when I ask that question? Is it the loss of a loved one? Um, Is it perhaps the pain of betrayal in a close relationship? Is it injury to a loved one? Uh, Is it the serious illness of a loved one? I know I've done some mourning uh, because Pastor George has stage four cancer. I know I've mourned for that recently, repeatedly, (laughs) as I prayed for him. Perhaps you're disappointed in a child's life decisions. Uh, What is it that has caused you to mourn? What is it that makes you grieve? Now let me ask you another question. As you've thought about what makes you mourn as I've asked these questions, did you think about mourning over your sin? Did that come to your mind? And if you did think about it, was it one of the first or one of the last things you thought about? I think, I think these are some pretty good questions that were kind of shouting at me as I thought about this passage, and I needed to ask myself, if, if you didn't think about mourning over sin in your life, or it only perhaps came to you as an afterthought, then perhaps the words of John Stott hit closer to home than many of us might like to think when he said, I fear that evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, which we should, sometimes thereby make light of sin. There is not enough sorrow for sin among us. I fear that he is true, uh, truly speaking there, that he is correct. And this morning, I want us to consider that this issue is the very thing that Jesus was talking about in this second beatitude. I think it's primarily, though I wouldn't say exclusively, primarily mourning for sin that he has in mind. Uh, especially since it follows on right after the first beatitude as we looked and saw last week. We saw the connection last week 
that we'll see again this week. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we want to ask two questions uh, here. First of all, we want to ask, who are those who mourn? And then what does it mean that they'll be comforted, right? If we're going to understand what Jesus is talking about. Who is, what's the mourning he's talking about? Who are those who mourn? Well, it's clear, first of all, from the context that Jesus isn't referring to just anyone who might mourn for just any reason. After all, there are a lot of people who mourn who aren't experiencing the kingdom of heaven as a reality in their lives, who aren't true believers, because those are the ones who, right, who are part of the kingdom. So yet, he doesn't have just any old kind of mourning in mind here from just anyone, although I'm sure he cares about all who mourn, right? He's a loving God. He's not thinking of everyone here in just any kind of mourning. As we already observed last week, we can't read this in isolation from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount or of the other Beatitudes in particular, and it's especially important that Jesus places it, as I said before, directly following blessed are the poor in spirit. As Kent Hughes has, I think, perhaps correctly observed, the intimate connection of this second Beatitude with the first is beautiful and compelling. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is primarily intellectual. Those who understand that they are spiritual beggars are blessed. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is its emotional counterpart. It naturally follows that when we see ourselves for what we are, our emotions will be stirred to mourning. Well, when we see ourselves for what we are, as we saw last week, right, we see ourselves as sinners. And so what do we mourn for? Sin, right? Um, so this means that Jesus has in mind here a righteous mourning over sin, primarily, if not exclusively, right? It, God will bring us comfort for all kinds of mourning in our lives as we uh, follow him, as those who are part of the kingdom of God, right? But it begins with, right, this poverty in spirit that leads us to see our sin, and a mourning for that sin that leads to repentance. Which opens up to us all the comfort that God has for all the kinds of mourning we'll ever experience in our lives, right? But it begins here. And so I think this is primarily what Jesus has in mind. And we can say a couple of more things about this. First, we can say that this is the kind of mourning, for example, that accompanies a deep sense of one's own sin, and leads to repentance. It's this kind of mourning about which the Lord spoke through the prophet Joel, and you'll have all these references in your notes that I gave you. I gave you a sheet of notes there because it's going to be hard to turn to all these things. Perhaps you can turn to them later and just listen to me read them here. But here's what it says in Joel 2, 12 and 13. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, And with mourning, so rend your heart and not your garments. See, it was a common thing uh, when people were mourning to tear their garments as a sign of mourning in those days. And and it was an out display of mourning, right? God didn't care about that. He cared about what was in the heart, right? So he said, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. This is a call to repentance. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. 
This is the kind of mourning I think that Jesus is talking about. Rending your heart. Sorrow for your sin that leads you to turn to God who is merciful and will forgive you. Last week we saw that the Corinthian church demonstrated this kind of mourning, which Paul referred to as a godly sorrow for sin. It's an example that's worthy of considering again. If you recall, there was a lack of concern in the Corinthian church over sexual immorality in their midst, uh, which Paul confronted in his first epistle to the Corinthians. And I'll just cite uh, a portion of that. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. What he's saying there is even the worst pagans wouldn't tolerate that, and you're tolerating it in the church there. You're not doing anything about it. He says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. They should have been mourning over this sin. They should have been mourning over their sin and tolerating that sin as though it was okay. And they weren't because they were puffed up and prideful. They weren't poor in spirit at the moment, right? Which would have led them to mourn. You see the connection here? These concepts, you see them everywhere in Scripture if you look for them, that Jesus is talking about here. And so he says, You're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now, Paul went on to direct them to do church discipline on this guy. And and they did. And apparently the guy did repent, but the church had to repent first. They had to repent of the fact that they had never done the church discipline in the first place. They had to repent of their own sin before they could even do church discipline. Their sin of tolerating this, of being prideful and not mourning over it. They did that. They repented. They held the man accountable. They did church discipline, and apparently he repented. And then Paul brought it up again in his second epistle to them. We have no reason to think it's not about the same guy. In fact, he told him, don't, you know, make sure you let him know he's forgiven now because we don't want the guy to become too (laughs) depressed, right? He's, uh, and so uh, then Paul talked about the godly sorrow that they had experienced and expressed in 2 Corinthians 7. We read part of this last week, but again, it's, it's worth reading again. In 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11, he said, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, and I think he has 1 Corinthians in mind here, I do not regret it. Though, he says, I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. He, he, he had some regrets because Paul doesn't like to make people feel bad. He does it only when he has to. N- neither do you or I. We don't. We don't want to hurt people. We hate it when people hurt, if we love them. But if we love them, sometimes we have to hurt them a little bit, right? We have, to, we have to challenge them. We have to confront them. And so Paul has the same mixed emotions he's expressing here that you or I have when we have to confront a sin in someone and we know it's going to hurt their feelings, right? We don't want them to experience pain, but if we know that the pain that they'll experience will be good for them, we'll do it anyway. 
Just like the parent who spanks his child and says, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Well, there, any parent who's ever had to spank their child knows that's true, right? Well, Paul's like the parent spanking a child here, and, and you see it in the, what he says. In other words, he's saying he gets, where, he gets how tough it is for them and for us to do this, but we've got to do it anyway. And so anyway, he says, uh, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry the only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, and is not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. That's a righteous anger toward their own sin. Enough to deal with it, right? What fear. Meaning fear of God. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all these things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Notice again in verse 10 the distinction that Paul makes between Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. The difference between them is not just that one recognizes sin and its consequences and the other does not, but that godly sorrow leads to genuine repentance. There are a lot of people that sorrow over sin in their lives and its consequences, but who don't repent. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, Paul says. I think we should pause a moment and notice that when Paul spoke of godly sorrow, he didn't specifically mention crying or tears. He did say in his first letter they hadn't mourned over this. That implies they sh- at least some of them should have been crying about it, right? Um, but he doesn't mention that specifically here. I think this might be important because people tend to express sorrow in different ways, including sorrow over sin. Some people may shed many tears. I'm a crier over, you know, I'm one of those kind. I'll shed many tears, right? Uh, Some people may shed few tears. Um, uh, Some people, you may not see them cry at all. Uh, Perhaps people like that, they, when they're mourning over something or torn up about something, they express their sorrow in some different way. People are different, and they express sorrow in different ways. Um, as I said, some people may shed many tears, some few, perhaps none. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's possible to shed a lot of tears and not be really sorry at all for your sin. So how many tears you shed, that doesn't demonstrate how sorry you are or not. Consider, for example, the way in which Israel demonstrated what Paul would refer to in 2 Corinthians as worldly sorrow. A good example of that happened in the days of Malachi. And it's, and it's recorded in Malachi 2, 13 and 14. God is laying out some charges against the Israelites in, through the prophet Malachi. And he says in Malachi 2, 13... This is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears. Now, God's 
calling this a sin. But we have to read the whole thing to see why, right? Um, You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Now, sounds like if they're bringing their offerings and they're weeping and they seem really sorry, but God says that's the very reason he doesn't accept them. What? We, we know he wants us to mourn for our sins, so what's the problem? Well, you gotta, you got to read on. Yet you say, for what reason? That's exactly what we were asking. Why would he do this? Why would God do that? And then he says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The, all these men who were coming and weeping and wailing before God, supposed tears of repentance, tolerated grievous sin in their lives. They weren't mourning for their sin at all. Perhaps things had gone badly for them and they were crying over that. Their tears were not true tears of sorrow for sin, is what I'm saying. The people of Israel shed many tears when bringing their offerings, but they weren't associated with godly sorrow because they didn't lead to genuine humility and repentance for grave sin in their midst. I met a guy like this years ago. Um, Kim and I were doing marital counseling uh, with a couple who had children, and he had confessed to us years of molesting children in two or three different states. And... uh, I challenged him repeatedly for this sin. He's not been around here for a long time, by the way. And sadly, his wife has had to leave him over this issue. And, uh, and well, she should have. But it was just a terrible situation. I only ever saw the guy cry one time. I had told the elders of the church about it. Right away. Um, and and uh, he got very upset about that. And uh, that I'd, I'd gone sort of public with this. And he cried. And I remember looking at him and saying, this is the first time I've seen you cry, and you're crying for yourself. I've never seen you shed a tear for anyone you've hurt. You don't care. He claimed to be a true Christian, and I challenged that. I didn't believe him. He was like those people in Malachi's day. Those weren't tears of godly sorrow leading to repentance. He was, he was mourning for himself and how he would look to other people when they found out about it, which they did. He went to several churches in the area, and I went to each of those churches and told him about it. And I told him his la- his la- his, he spent his last day of anonymity on this earth, so far as I was concerned. He was not going to do this ever again to anyone if I could, if I could stop it. Uh, so I, I've seen this extreme kind of thing before. People can shed fake tears, and any parent has seen it, right? We know it's true. Tears aren't what determine whether or not we're truly sorry over sin. 
whether or not the mourning, however we express it, leads to repentance is that the guy I met that time and the Israelites would have done well to hear what James said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. That's the real issue. Poverty of spirit, as Jesus called it, being poor in spirit. That's humility. So if they were going to shed tears, the Israelites should have shed tears that demonstrated true humility and repentance. Uh, they, they may have had sorrow, but they were not poor spirit. At any rate, I don't think, as I said, it's the amount of tears one sheds, or even perhaps if they share tears at all, that matters in the end. As I said before, people mourn in, in different ways. Some people may cry a lot, some a little, some not at all. The, the, the people who aren't criers, they may instead experience things like anxiety, Depression. Some people are depressed, don't cry. Uh, they do things like uh, become insomniacs or uh, the reverse, sleep all the time. Uh, maybe they're angry at themselves. Paul mentioned that. What indignation, right? Uh, they showed anger at the sin in themselves and in their midst, a, a righteous anger. And sometimes people, you may not see them cry, but you'll see, hear them express anger at themselves over what they've done in different ways. Um, there are different signs of sorrow for sin is what I'm saying. The telltale sign of godly sorrow for sin, though, is that it's the kind of mourning that leads to repentance. It's accompanied by humility, and it leads to repentance. It's a manifestation of poverty of spirit that leads to trusting the Lord for change. The attitude of such a person may be seen in the, in the following illustration. The, an editor to a series of articles asked the question, what is wrong with the world? Do you ever ask that question, this author writes? We all ask that question when we try to puzzle through the horrible events of terror that we see in the world. But G.K. Chesterton gave a very short and surprising answer to the editor. The letter to the editor read this way. Dear sir, regarding your article, What is Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Now there's a sense in which until each of us can say that I am what's wrong with the world, or perhaps until we can say and feel with the Apostle Paul that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Which Paul said toward the end of his life. Until we have that sense, maybe we haven't truly mourned for our sins as we should. If we're still thinking everyone else is the real problem and not me, maybe we haven't really mourned for our sins as we should until we have really mourned for our sins, however that shows in our lives. We're never going to be able to mourn for the sin around us as we should either. And that leads me to a second thing that we could say about this, that it's possible that the righteous mourning our Lord Jesus has in mind 
would also include sorrow for the sin we see in others, not just in ourselves. We sorrow over sin, period, beginning with ourselves, right? And then in what we see around us. As the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 said in Psalm 119, 136, rivers of water run down from my eyes. Apparently he was a crier too. Because men do not keep your law. He was mourning over the fact that people wouldn't keep God's law. We felt that way in our culture, haven't we? When we see people trying to confuse kids about whether or not they're male or female, when we see rampant homosexuality, gay marriage, abortion, the worst sin of all in our culture, when we see these kinds of things, many of us have mourned over it at times. In fact, one of the reasons we don't like to think about these things is because it causes that in us. And we don't like to feel it. The prophet Jeremiah also exhibited such sorrow for sin when he wrote in Jeremiah 13, beginning in verse 15, Hear and give ear. Do not be proud. We're coming back to the need for humility over and over again, right? For the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. So we can see the background for Jesus' statement, blessed are those who mourn. Well, we see this throughout Scripture, this concept of, right, being poor in spirit, mourning for sin, which leads to repentance. This isn't a new concept Jesus is talking about. He's trying to drive home to his disciples and to all the others who are hearing what they should have already known but which he's seeing precious little of in the Jews in his day. So that's our first question, I hope, answered. Who are those who mourn? Well, I hope I've given you a good idea biblically about what I believe Jesus had in mind when he said that. The second question is, what does it mean that those who mourn shall be comforted? What does it mean that they shall be comforted? Now, the Greek word translated comforted here means in such context to instill someone with courage or cheer, to comfort, to encourage, to cheer up. Uh, and in the passive voice, as it's used here, they shall be comforted. It means to be or receive comfort through words or a favorable change in situation. Maybe both. As we've already seen in this particular instance, our Lord Jesus' reference to those who mourn refers most especially to those who mourn for their sin. So the comfort that they'll receive will be primarily, although not exclusively, as I said before, aimed at this mourning for sin, right? In fact, uh, the bringing of such comfort is one of the ministries that was foretold of the coming Messiah. When Isaiah spoke of the forerunner of the Messiah, for example, in Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 through 3, he said this. This is God speaking. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. That's the idea, right? That's the comfort for those who mourn over their sin. Their iniquity is pardoned. They're forgiven. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And of course, that's quoted in the New Testament as referring to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, who was to prepare the way for Jesus' messianic ministry of comfort to God's people. And he did this, of course, by calling them to repentance for their sins. Remember, he, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And, of course, that's what Jesus has in mind in our passage, right? Repentance of sin. Isaiah again spoke in similar terms when he, re- when he recorded the Messiah's own words. There are parts of Isaiah, the, pro- the prophecy of Isaiah, in which he's kind of listening in on conversations from eternity past between the Father and the Son. He's, he's privy to, to these things. Uh, and here... The Son, Jesus, speaks in Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And by, that, by the way, that word for poor there, uh, that's the same word that Jesus would have had in mind in the previous beatitude, the poor in spirit. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, in Luke 4, 18 and 19, when Jesus announced his messianic ministry, he he read this passage and claimed to be fulfilling it, right? Because he is the Messiah. Of course, he stopped there because the day of vengeance wasn't coming yet, and he didn't want to make them think that it was. That, That awaits the future. But the text goes on to say, after it says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And then he picks up again on this messianic role as comforter. To console those who mourn in Zion. Or excuse me, to comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, it's, it's pretty interesting to me that these terms in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation, you remember, of the Old Testament, and it's the Bible that most of the early church used. The, it's, the Septuagint is actually what is quoted when you have most of the Old Testament quotations or allusions in the New Testament. It's from the Greek, actually. And if you look there, you'll find that these words for comfort and mourning are the very words that Jesus used when he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's almost as though he's taking language right out of Isaiah and saying, this is what I'm proclaiming to you. Because he's the Messiah. So he saw the day of vengeance as in the future. And he probably also saw the ultimate experience of comfort for those who mourn his future as well. But just as we've already seen that the kingdom of heaven has an ultimate realization in the future, yet 
the power and blessings of that kingdom may be experienced now in this life, so also the comfort that ultimately awaits the future in its fullness can also be experienced even now by those who are in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is saying here. So we have both a future hope of comfort, because there's a future fullness of the kingdom that awaits us, but we also have a a present experience of comfort, a bit more about the future hope of comfort. Um, I think in your notes I give you a couple of passages from Revelation. I'll zero in on one of them. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which is, by the way, language from taken, taken from Isaiah, later in Isaiah. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's the ultimate comfort that awaits us in the future. No more crying and no more dying. I'm looking forward to that. There's also this present experience of comfort that Jesus talks about here in this passage that we can have. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The connection to Isaiah tells us that this awaits the new heavens and the new earth as John made clear in Revelation. But believers have always experienced this who are part of the kingdom, whether, whether it's the messianic kingdom come in Jesus Christ or whether it's the manifestation of God's reign in the past. Um, as David said when he wrote of the Lord as our shepherd in Psalm 23, he said in Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Apostle Paul also spoke very powerfully of the comfort we may receive from God in this life in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. As I said before, we begin with this poverty of spirit that leads to repentance And we become members of the kingdom of God. And then that opens up all the comfort of the God of all comfort to us in all our tribulations and trials. And that's what Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians when he says that. But as he also clearly taught, this comfort we have received from God is to be shared with other people. 
We're to comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. And that means any kind of comfort we've received. When we see someone in sin who doesn't know Christ as Savior, and we share the gospel with them, and they are convicted of their sin, and they have sorrow for their sin that leads to repentance, and they find the comfort of God's forgiving grace, we've shared God's comfort with them. When we see a believer who's struggling in their trials and tribulations, and we've learned to be comforted by God in our own trials and tribulations, we can come to them and say, here's how I experience the comfort of God, and you can too. It's to be shared with others. There's plenty to go around. God is an infinite God. He never runs out of comfort to give to his people. As the God of all comfort, as Paul says. So, are you seeking the comfort of your great shepherd this morning? Have you, have you experienced the kind of mourning that Jesus teaches as the essential thing to the experiencing of this comfort? Have you begun with being sorry for your sin? Now, I think most of you have because I see a bunch of believers in this room, right, who I know to be believers. Uh, and I know that God has done a humbling work in your lives and that you have received this comfort of God's forgiveness. But maybe there's other kinds of comfort you still need from the God of all comfort. And you're struggling. There is enough comfort to go around. Maybe what you, you should do if you haven't done it yet is tell your struggles to someone else who may have struggled with the same kind of thing you're struggling with and ask them how they got comfort from God. Because he gave them comfort to share with you so that they can help lead you to the comfort that only he can provide. This is one of the ways that God gives us his comfort. He uses other believers. Primarily, though, it comes from the word of God that we're comforted. You remember some weeks back, I did a sermon on Romans 5, 1 through 5. You know, God helped me through my trials with this passage. And I shared with you how it helped me. Well, that's because God comforted me and I wanted to share it. We should, this is what we should do for each other. This is what it's like to be in the kingdom of heaven. To be comforted by God and share it with others. That's what it means. I think we're pretty good at that as a church. But we can always do better, right? We can always do better. Because we haven't arrived yet. We're not perfect. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting comfort and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray that you would indeed comfort all of our hearts and establish us in every good work. We've uh, experienced many trials and tribulations as a body of Christ in the last few years especially, so many sicknesses, so many hardships in this body. And I've seen 
you comfort your people. You've comforted me through your word and through the people around me here. And I know, Lord, that your spirit is at work here in this way. Help us, Lord, not to grow weary in this well-doing, but to redouble our efforts to share your comfort with all who need it. This means being more faithful to share the gospel with those who do not yet know Christ as Lord and Savior, and it also means being more attentive to those around us who need comforting. Forgive us when we fail to do that, Lord, and help us to do better, I pray. And for anyone who who has not yet come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, it is my prayer that today you will do for him or her what you've done for those of us who do know you. Grant them faith and repentance, we pray, that they might receive as a free gift through faith in Christ who died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead that they may have everlasting life, that they may receive the free gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. We ask these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.